Section 25 of Stories from the Trenches. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California. Stories from the Trenches by Carlton Case. Section 25. Something New for the Marines. And, judging by his letters, and bless these amateurs, and new grounds for exemption. Something new for the Marines. Quote, if Corporal Blank ever wrote a better story for his newspaper than the one he has sent to us, I should certainly like to read it. Unquote. This high praise comes from Major H. W. Parker, head of the Marine Recruiting Service in New York and is bestowed upon a letter in the recruiter's bulletin which was written by a marine formerly a reporter in philadelphia and now quote, somewhere in france unquote. he rejoices at the start that quote, at last it is happening unquote, which happening is that the marines quote, Every scrapping one of them down to the last grizzled veteran are undergoing new experiences, learning new tricks. Unquote. Of course, this is beyond the possibility, everybody will say, and the ex reporter admits that. One would think so after hearing of their experiences in faraway China, Japan, and the Philippines, nearby Cuba, Haiti, and Mexico and other places which God forgot, and which you and I never heard of, after hearing stories of daredevil bravery, fierce abandon, and disregard for life and limb, in the faithful discharge of their duties as soldiers of the sea and guardians of the peace in Uncle Sam's dirty corners. And yet here, in France, among people of their own color and race, of paved streets and taxicabs, among the old men and women of the villages, among the poilu coming and going in a steady stream to and from the front, the marine is learning new things every day. Packing up back home on a few hours' notice is no new experience to the marine. Marching aboard a transport with the date and hour of sailing unknown is taken as a matter of course by the veteran. There is no cheering gallery, no weeping relatives, wife, or sweethearts, as he leaves to carry out the business in hand. It is just the same as if you were going to your office in the morning. You may return in time for dinner, or you may be delayed. The only difference is that sometimes the Marines do not return. Although life aboard the transport which carried the first regiment of Marines to new fields of action in France was a matter of routine to the average seagoing soldier, there was added the zest of expectation of an encounter with one of the floating perils, the sub. It was but a matter of two or three days, however, when everyone became accustomed to the numerous lookouts stationed about the ship, the frequent abandoned ship drills, the strange orders which came down the line, and the new-fangled rules and regulations which permitted no lights or smoking after sundown. 
Kaiser Bills pet sharks were contemptuously referred to as the tin lizzies of the sea. We must play safe and avoid them, was the policy of those entrusted with the safety of more than two thousand expectant fighters, however. And we met them, too, not one or two of them, but here the censor interfered. Since his arrival in France, the Marine has spent day after day in learning new things, not the least of which is that contrary to his usual experience of finding about him a hostile people, rifle in hand, and unknown danger ahead, he is among a people who welcome him as a friend and ally in the struggle against a common enemy. With the arrival of the American troops, the appealing outstretched hands of France were changed to hands of welcome, creating an atmosphere that might easily have turned the heads of men more balanced than the Marines, after being confined for more than two weeks aboard a ship. But, here again, one comes in contact with the matter-of-fact administration of the Marines. Arriving under such circumstances, the landing and encampment of the Marines were effected with a military precision and businesslike efficiency, which allowed no one for a moment to forget the serious nature of the mission upon which he had embarked. Stores and supplies were loaded on trucks, and in less than three hours after the order was given to disembark, the Marines, with their packs strapped over the shoulders, were marching to their camp just on the outskirts of the seaport town of blank. Within another hour the whole regiment was under canvas, field desks and typewriter chests were unlocked, and regimental and other departmental offices were running along at full swing. And that was the beginning of the period of training, during which the Marine is learning everything that is to be known about waging twentieth-century warfare. He is taking a postgraduate course in the intricacies of modern trench-building, grenade-throwing, and barbed-wire entanglements, and the very best men of the French army are his instructors. The Marine is also learning the lingo of this country, the nicer phrases of the language as well as the slang of the trenches, but in the majority of cases experience was his teacher. Upon the arrival of the transport, liberty hours were arranged for the Marines, and, armed with a, quote, short vocabulary of French words and phrases, unquote, with which all had been supplied, they invaded the cafes, restaurants, and shops of the little old seaport town. And it was the restaurants where one's ignorance of French was most keenly felt. All sorts of queer and yet strangely familiar noises emanated from the curtained windows of the Bouvet, along the streets. Upon investigation it would be discovered that a Marine, having lost his vocabulary, was flapping his arms and cackling for eggs, earnestly baaing for lamb stew, or grunting to the best of his ability in a vain endeavor to make Madame understand that he wanted roast pork. Imagine his chagrin to find that 
pig and pork, as shown on page 16, are pork in French, and are pronounced just the same as in good old American. But the scenes that presented themselves on Sundays, or fête days, take the 4th or 14th of July, for example, were such as never had been seen in any French town before. Picture a tiny café, low and whitewashed, ancient, weather-beaten, but immaculately clean, with its heavy ceiling beams and huge fireplace with brass and copper furnishings. With this background, imagine just as many tables as the little place can hold, about which are crowded French and American soldiers, sailors, and marines. The table in the corner there, for instance, two poilus, two American jackies, two marines, and an old Breton peasant farmer, with his wife, fat, uncomprehending, and wild-eyed, and his daughter, red-lipped and of fair complexion. These three in from the country for a holiday, the women arrayed in the black cloth and velvet costumes, bright-colored silk aprons, and elaborate linen headdress, which identify them as native of a certain locality. One of the jackies sings with gusto service songs of strong and colorful language, singing to himself, save for the half-amused and wondering stares of the peasants. The younger of the Frenchmen shows by taking off his coat and unbuttoning his shirt, where the shell fragment penetrated which caused the paralysis in his left arm, and sent him home on a month's furlough and the americans eye with interest the actual fragment itself now doing duty as a watch charm but the hubbub and racket cease and every one rushes to the windows and door as the marine band comes swinging along the waterfront playing with catching rhythm our director the french burst out in cries of vive la marique the fever spreads, and our soldiers and sailors yell, Viva la France! or as near to it as they can get, as the possession marches by, and the fat old peasant woman says with full approval, That's beautiful. Another letter from the permanent training camp of the Marines, published in the Recruiter's Bulletin, tells of an inspection of the regiment by General Pershing and General Petat, the French commander-in-chief. We read, quote, that the piercing eyes of Black Jack rarely miss an unshaven face. Badly polished shoes are the sloppy appearance of anyone, unquote, among the soldiers under inspection, and the writer relates, Together with the commander-in-chief of all the French forces, and accompanied by several French generals, representing the most important military units in France. General Pershing made one of his now famous whirlwind inspection tours, and descended upon the Marines amid a cloud of dust, which marked the line of travel of the high-powered French touring cars, which carried the generals. Not so very long before that, the field telephone in the regimental office rang, and a voice came over the wire, the big blue machine is on the way down, and will probably be there in ten minutes. That was sufficient. 
Two or three telephone calls were hurriedly made, and the colonel, accompanied by his staff, proceeded on up the line, met the general's party, and the marines were ready. The result of the inspection is summed up in the memorandum issued to the command, and which says in part, Yesterday, at the inspection of the regiment by General Blank, Commander-in-Chief of all the French forces, General Pershing, Commander-in-Chief of the American forces in France, and General Blank, commanding the Blank Division Chasseur, who are instructing our men, General Blank congratulated the colonel of our regiment on the splendid appearance of officers and men, as well as the cleanliness of the town. General Pershing personally told the regimental commander that he wished to congratulate him on having such an excellent regiment. This announcement was read to the Marines as they were lined up for their noonday meal. And where is the Marine whose chest would not swell just a bit at this tribute paid by General Pershing to those upon whose shoulders rests the responsibility of maintaining and perpetuating the glorious history and fine traditions of the United States Marine Corps? Judging by his letters. Where's your uncle, Tommy? In France. What is he doing? I think he has charge of the war. Bless these amateurs. What are you knitting, my pretty maid? She purled, then dropped a stitch. A sock or a sweater, sir, she said, and darned if I know which. NEW GROUNDS FOR EXEMPTION The two young girls watched the nutty young Cuthbert pass along the street. "'Did he appeal for exemption?' said May. Uh, "'Yes,' said Ray. "'You might have known he would.' "'On what grounds?' Uh, "'I don't know,' replied Ray. "'Unless it was upon the ground that if he went to the war "'his wife's father would have no son-in-law to support.' Sousa's Little Joke Lieutenant John Philip Sousa, who is organizing military bands for the Navy, was talking to a correspondent about the submarine danger. "'A friend of mine, a coronet virtuoso,' he said, "'was submarined in the Mediterranean. The English paper that reported the affair worded it thus, quote, "'The famous coronetist Mr. Hornblower, though submarined by the Germans in the Mediterranean, was able to appear at Marseilles the following evening in four pieces.'" Rapid Military Advancement A certain West End tailor, being owed a considerable amount by a colonel who was received everywhere in society, made a bargain with the gentleman. He stipulated that instead of paying his debt, the colonel should introduce himself and family into high society. To this the colonel agreed. 
and not long after the tailor received an invitation to dinner. When the tailor arrived in the full glory of a perfect evening dress, the colonel did not recognize him. Uh, "'Pardon me, my dear fellow,' he said quietly as he shook hands. "'I quite forgot your name.' "'Quite likely,' sneered the tailor also sotte voce. "'But I made your breeches.' "'Oh, yes,' said the colonel, smiling, and then, turning to his wife, said, "'Allow me to introduce you, dear Major Bridges.' End of section 25. Read by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California. End of Stories from the Trenches, Funny Tales the Soldiers Tell by Carlton Case.